Well, good morning to you again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. You would find uh, the fourth chapter where we'll be today on page 1161 of the Bibles in your pew. We're going to begin at verse 25 and go to verse 27. Uh, Of course, we've been away from the Ephesians series for two Sundays now because I am an uncommonly blessed pastor. Uh, the uh, two Sundays ago, Neil Barham preached on the importance of, uh, of catechizing ourselves and our young people from, uh, from uh, the passage in Deuteronomy 6. And, uh, and so thank you, Neil, for that. And I trust that the, uh, the catechism class has been a blessing to, to those of you who have attended. And then last Sunday, uh, Steve uh, preached as well and uh, a sermon which was very profitable for me. And I appreciate you so much, Steve, uh, for, uh, for, for covering the pulpit as well while I was in Mandeville. Uh, please do continue to keep the saints uh, in Mandeville in prayer. They are still looking for a pastor. And I uh, uh, also moderated their congregational meeting, which I'm very thankful went without incident. Uh, thank you also for praying for Marissa and Abigail. I had to go to Mandeville by myself because at that time uh, Marissa was still ill, but uh, while Marissa has made, I think, I think a full recovery, right? Not 90% recovery? All right. Definitely on the mend, uh, just in time for me to start feeling a bit under the weather. But, uh, so please continue to pray for us. And so Ephesians chapter 4 is where we pick up at verse 25. And here's, what, here's our text for this morning. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. You will of course recall that there is a, uh, a, a divide in the book of Ephesians. Rather conveniently, you have three chapters on one side and then the latter three chapters on the other. First three chapters are mainly concerned with what we call uh, the, uh, oh goodness, the, the indicatives and the, Neil, help me. In English. <laughs> Neil Barham, ladies and gentlemen. The in- imperatives, indicatives and imperatives. That's what I'm searching for. Uh, and so you have the, the indicatives, that is who you are. Okay, it's from, it's from the verb to be. And, uh, and then the imperatives are commands, what you must do. And Ephesians is divided rather neatly from the, uh, uh, with the indicatives, who you are in Christ, uh, on one side, chapters 1 through 3, and then rather splendidly, chapters 4 through 6, mainly addressing, now take who you are and live accordingly. And our text this morning begins, you see, with another therefore in verse 25. It is based off the command given back in verse 22, where we're going to go now, where Paul commanded uh, the Ephesians to put off your old self, okay, which belongs to the former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires, desires that lie, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the command is to put off the old self, leave the old self behind. So the question that naturally follows is, how do we do that, Paul? What does that look like? 
And I think Paul is answering that question for the, basically the rest of the letter, basically the rest of the book. He starts with two things that we're going to focus on this morning, truth-telling and the proper place of anger. And so I'm going to, uh, I, I couldn't get the, the slide, the, sending over the slides to work this morning, so you will see the Bible text up here, but not the slides. So I'll try to be very clear and articulate and as, we, as we go along with uh, the sections and various quotations. But basically, three things I want us to focus on this morning, at least three things that are in the text. The first is a call to truth, truth-telling, uh, telling the truth to one another. So a call to truth. Second is a call, yes, a command to anger. Right? So it's be angry, but do not sin. But be angry is the command. So a call to truth, a call to anger. We're going to talk more about what that means. And a proper time for anger. Okay? So there's a call to truth, a call to anger, and there's a, there's a time for anger, a proper time. So we'll start with a call to truth. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So this is part of that putting off and putting on. For we are members of one another. So I want to just observe very quickly that the old nature was put off. It was put off and it's being put off. Both are true. Okay, And we tend to want to um, uh, focus on one or the other. We want to say, well, the old man has been killed and put to death and buried in Christ. The new man has risen again, right? A new creation in Christ, right? So all this obedience stuff should just come easy. No. The reality is, is that we still struggle against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So this means that yes, the old man is put off, but there is still work to do. There are still commands for our ears to hear, and my only proof for that is that Paul is giving them. One of the greatest paradoxes is that the old man is dead, but he has all the signs of being a zombie still very much alive as an enemy. As an enemy. That's what's changed. So that what I also want you to notice, and what you're going to keep seeing in Ephesians 4 and onward, is there's a, a no, or if you like, a thou shalt not, followed by a yes, or a thou shalt. Okay? A thou shalt not, followed by a thou shalt. A no, followed by a yes. Paul uses a particular method of instruction here that he's going to keep repeating, and I think it's good actually for us to both observe it and imitate it. When Paul gives instruction or teaching, especially on fighting temptation and sin, he doesn't just say, no, stop doing that. He says, no, stop doing that, and instead fill the gap left by the no with some kind of yes. Okay, So here he says, Put away falsehood, verse 25. That's the no. Okay? Basically, stop lying. Put away falsehood. And it's not only don't do that. It is, therefore, when you talk, speak truthfully. See? And in this case, he also gives a reason or a motivation, which is, for we are members of one another. We are connected to each other. The exact same language he uses in Romans 12. When he says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, here it is, members of one another. Same phrase. In other words, what this means is that unity, 
and being united together as Christians, as a church body, and as Christians and churches all over the world, it's not just something that we work toward, though we do, or aim for, though we do, or even enjoy, though we do. Unity is actually maintained by how we talk to each other. And there is no unity in our speaking together apart from honesty in our speaking together. There's no unity apart from honesty. We can't have unity and at the same time lie to each other or hide from each other. But it is possible to misunderstand this admonition, I think. Sometimes when we hear a call to honesty, I think this is especially true of Americans, we interpret it as unbounded speech. Right? Uh, A speech that is unbounded, uncontrolled, unfiltered, raw. Right? We understand the principle that it's good to be honest. And from there we reason sometimes. That means I should just blurt out whatever I want under the banner of being authentic and honest. No. Okay? There is, you, you can be honest and dumb at the same time. That's very possible. It's, it's, it's possible to be honestly dumb. And especially if you're doing it under the banner of authenticity. Okay? The easiest way to deal with that perception... <laughs> is simply to tell you my my very sound, weighty, sobering pastoral advice is that's dumb. Okay, I'm not referring merely to like merely to hard words or or tough love or straight talk about difficult things. There's a time for that. The apostles and prophets and even Jesus himself demonstrate that there are times where godly speech might not be the same thing as polite talk. Okay? Those can be, they can also be the same, but sometimes they can be very different. And so it's, uh, that's not the same thing, however, as unrestrained, ill-considered, unbounded, uncontrolled, haven't even bothered to pray about it before I open my mouth, speech. Okay? So again, when we talk about how we, what sort of metrics or standards we have for speaking, a useful way of measuring things that I have found is to say your speech should be wise and considered and prayerful, but if your rule for how to talk would indict the prophets, then it's probably insufficient. Okay, So if you have a law... We must always speak this way, and Elijah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel break the law, then the law needs revision. Proverbs 29.11 is also helpful here. There are two passages, by the way, I want everyone at Grace to be familiar with, uh, such that if I reference them, you know what I'm talking about. In addition to just general Bible memory and popular uh, texts prescribed for Bible memory, which is good, the two texts I want us to be familiar with are Deuteronomy 29, 29, okay, which made an appearance in Neil's sermon. Right? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things He has revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29, and Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Have you ever heard, I'm just venting? Yeah. Yeah, right? Okay? That's not, not a justification for the stupid. 
All right, so a, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, unrestrained, uncontrolled, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And so if you know Jeremiah 29, 11, that's a popular Bible memory verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and so on. So there's Proverbs 29, 11 as well. But we, we have to balance this Proverbs text with our text this morning. Look again at verse 25 in Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So what this means is that we tell the truth wisely, frequently, but above all, if we're holding our speech back, yeah, hold it back. That is, at least don't lie to each other. So if the, if the decision is between lying and remaining silent, go with the remaining silent. And when you are talking, go with the truth-telling. Okay? So how does this look practically? Well, I mean, we can move in any number of directions here. And if, if you've got questions that spring from this text, maybe I'd be happy to get together with you and we can try and wrestle them out together. But I'm going to say the most common lie that you and I tell, I'll indict myself here as well, most common lie that is practiced in church bodies sounds like this. How are you doing? I'm fine. Oh. Now look, I know that when someone asks, how are you? How, how are you doing? How have you been? They are probably expecting fine. <laughs> Maybe even desiring it. And I'm not saying that if someone asks, how are you? That you are under apostolic command to unload all the burdens and emotions and difficulties of the last three weeks. They were trying to be kind and ask you how you're doing. They have roughly two minutes and don't, so don't repay that kindness by locking them into an inescapable counseling session. That's a good way to get people to stop talking to you. If you need a session like that, call your pastor. But I think it would go a long way to strengthening our unity. Strengthening our unity. If among us at Grace Presbyterian Church, when we asked, how are you, that we had trained ourselves to have things to say that were maybe a little bit more honest. Things like, I'm in the fight right now. Could you just keep me in prayer? That's okay. And you don't have to go into more detail than that if you don't want to. Or, how am I? I'm, I'm very thankful. God's been, God's been kind, but it's been a tough few days. That's simple enough. Or, <laughs> I have, I'm not sure how to answer that. But I really appreciate that you asked. How are you? <laughs> you know. Will those answers, will, those, will that sort of caliber quality of answer make things in that moment a bit awkward? Possibly. Maybe even probably. For a minute. But let me tell you the truth. It would be better for us as a people if our conversations were seasoned with just a bit more of that kind of awkwardness it would mean that we were more frequently speaking the truth to each other. It would mean that when someone said, I'm fine or we are fine, you could actually believe them and celebrate with them. So, so that's a, a brief overview of being honest with each other. It's a command from Jesus spoken through Paul that we put away falsehood and speak truthfully to each other. It's a good command, and the easiest way to understand it is that, as I said earlier, that honesty means unguarded honesty. 
usually in the form of unguarded anger. And that's why the next verse is, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? So the first point, okay, first thing that we talked about was a call to truth and truth-telling. Now we have a call to anger. Paul is here quoting from the Psalms, by the way. Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. There it is. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So we see here again, Paul loves to quote what he's grown up singing. Paul has grown up singing the Psalms. And when it comes time to instruct the people of God, he reaches for his hymn book. And he starts quoting song lyrics. He begins with this two-pronged command from the Psalter. Be angry, command, and do not sin, command. I want to begin with a few observations about this command. First of all, wait for it, it is a command. There are evils in the world and in ourselves that require us to be angry. I'll give you some examples. The destruction of families that we see in our present historical moment. Even by things like no-fault divorce. That where, and by that I mean it, all it takes is I'm unhappy. And then, and then divorce is justified. That should make you angry. The hollowing out of the church. Making it little more than a market of religious goods and services and programs to satisfy the impulses of religious consumers. That should make you angry. The mockery of worship by an attractional entertainment-driven model so that worship of the thrice holy God, the almighty Lord of heaven and earth, is reduced to a manipulative dispensary of emotional highs. That ought to make you angry. The hypocrisy of protected sins or secret addictions that we quietly maintain and guard and then wonder why our households get wrecked. That ought to make us angry. The evils of abortion, although right now I think I prefer the new term prenatal homicide. That ought to make us angry. Wickedness in high places when the God of Psalm 2 calls on kings and governors to bow the knee and kiss the sun. The plague on our land and on our city of absent fathers and husbands who abdicate their responsibilities. The lies of what I like to call perverted patriarchy. Some of you have heard of the so-called red pill movement. If you don't know what I'm talking about, enjoy that ignorance. It's the constant protection of men's sins excusing men from responsibility and despising women. That should make us angry. The lies of feminism, the protection of women's sins and excusing women from responsibility and despising men. That should make us angry. There are things in your own life you ought to be angry about. The sin that you see. The way that you speak to people. The own thoughts that you nurse inside your head. There are things you should be angry about if you worship God and have eyes in your head. Now it is difficult, it is difficult, brothers and sisters, to keep our anger within the prescribed fences of God's Word. Nevertheless, that should not frighten us away from obedience to the reality that there is a time, a proper time, for anger. And so my next point within this call to anger is there are two kinds of anger. Okay? And many of you know this terminology. There is unrighteous anger and there's righteous anger. Okay? There's unrighteous anger 
and there's righteous anger. So unrighteous anger is pretty obvious. I think it's easy for us to identify. Explosive anger, anger over petty things, etc. So what about righteous anger? Well, let me, let me start by just asking, why is there righteous anger? Well, because of the first point. You remember the first point. We are bound to speak the truth, right? Put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And we serve a God who is truth and who gets angry. But God's anger is always responsive, never reactive. Okay? That was going to be on a slide, but I couldn't get the slides to send over. God's anger is always responsive, never reactive. Here's what I mean. When we get angry, it's usually reactive. It almost feels like it just comes over you in a wave that you can't control. Anger, like a lot of other emotions, it feels like you're walking down a dark alley and anger just jumps out and clobbers you and overpowers you. That's often our experience of anger, and if we're honest, a lot of other emotions. But we have to be really clear here. The Bible speaks of God being angry, sad, happy. That terminology is used to get at the high mystery of how God responds. But God's responses are not mere reactions like ours are. No state of mind ever sneaks up on God. No condition ever jumps out from behind the box in the dark alley and clobbers the Almighty. God, in His Word, gets angry, but He does not throw temper tantrums. God is happy, but never overwhelmed. God is sad, but never hopelessly forlorn. In fact, the high mystery of our God is that in one sense, He is really always happy because things are never not going according to His plan. So to get back to the point, there are two kinds of anger, unrighteous anger and righteous anger. They both have something in common, though. And if you get one thing from the sermon this morning, get this. Unrighteous anger, righteous anger have this one thing in common. They both turn rancid and nasty if you don't do something with it. This is what's missing, in in my opinion, from a lot of conversations about righteous and unrighteous anger. A lot of the talk surrounding righteous and unrighteous anger often boils down to, okay, so unrighteous anger is the anger I need to confess and get rid of. Righteous anger is the kind I get to nurture and nurse and feed and dwell on and obsess about and wail loudly about it all the time and make sure everybody sees me doing it. Absolutely false. Anger of both kinds have this in common. They are both like the quail meat given to Israel in the wilderness. If you gather it up and try to store it, it will make you miserable. I thought only unrighteous anger produced bitterness, Pastor Brian. No. Perfectly righteous anger will produce bitterness if you sit on it. What distinguishes unrighteous anger from righteous anger is not that one of them keeps in the fridge longer. What separates them, well, is that, let me rephrase that because I'm about to contradict myself. What distinguishes, (laughs) what distinguishes these two is not that one keeps for a long, long, long time and the other one doesn't. 
What separates them, they both spoil. What separates them is how quickly. Unrighteous anger spoils immediately. Wherever you find it, you repent of it, and you forgive. Righteous anger will spoil, though not immediately. It's not a sin, so you don't have to repent of it. Well, what should you do with it then? You should turn it into action. You should do something with it. Well, do what? Anything that is profitable for the kingdom. Offer it to God in prayer. Plead for His intervention. Start there. Get others together to pray about it. If your anger has a subject, write a letter to that person perhaps, humbly pleading with them to recognize their sin. Disciple those who are falling into the pit of unrighteous anger if you're mad about that. Fight hypocrisy within the body of Christ by practicing honesty. Loving the brethren. Showing up that you might know and be known. Do something with that righteous anger or even that will spoil. So how long? What is... What is the shelf life of righteous anger? Well, look at the text again. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So there's a time for anger. Call call to truth-telling, even a call to be properly angry. Now the third point is there's a time, and I almost want you to think of a time frame for anger. How long... Does my righteous anger stay righteous? Based on verses 26 and 27, I'm going to say about 12 hours at best. I know the most common way that we read this text and teach it is to say to married couples and to families, don't go to bed angry at each other, right? And that's a good application of this text. Although briefly, just so you know, that doesn't mean, husbands and wives, that you're not allowed to go to bed until every detail of the argument is settled and totally resolved. It means you, individual, you are not allowed to go to bed with your anger still kicking, even if the argument remains unresolved. It's don't let the sun go down on your anger, not don't let the sun go down on their anger and every detail of its justification. It doesn't say make sure all elements of the argument are resolved. You can resolve it in the morning if you need to. But you can't go to bed still spitting venom. The other person does not have to be awake for you to deal with that. What I want you to see this morning, is that the Apostle also gives us a general sense of how long our righteous anger stays noble and fresh before it starts to spoil. And, as I said, the answer is about 12 hours at best. Sundown being a good standard. Again, just like the food in the wilderness. Don't keep it overnight. This immediately teaches us that Paul is addressing the kind of anger that starts to dominate our thinking. Uh, what I'm trying to say there is Paul is addressing that kind of anger that starts to occupy and fill up your thoughts. He's not saying, uh, so uh, what I'm not saying here is, you know, when it comes to something like abortion, you're allowed to be mad for 12 hours and then get over it and never think about it again. I'm not saying that. 
I think Paul is saying, go ahead and have those moments where your heart is grieved about the evil around you and in you. Where your soul is stirred up about it. Where you sit for a moment with the horror of it. Maybe an hour. Maybe as much as a day. But no more than that. Do something redemptive with it. I don't care what, as long as it's lawful. Take some kind of productive, godly action with it. Because if you don't, what does the text say? You give an opportunity to the devil, even with your righteous anger. Hey, turn it to joy. Amen. Look to the Lord and turn it to joy. It was the Puritan Thomas Watson who said, Satan loves to fish in the troubled water of a discontented heart. Satan loves to fish in the troubled water of a discontented heart. In other words, the devil loves your unrestrained emotion and especially your unresolvable anger. The devil loves your paralyzing anger that keeps you so mentally and emotionally and spiritually busy that you barely have any time for any kind of productive kingdom work that looks like loving your next door neighbor. The devil loves the way that your unresolved anger drives you into endless internal gripe sessions, endless arguments with your spouse, endless arguments with your kids, endless silent treatments when you don't get your way, endless cultivated, well-watered bitterness that keeps you endlessly occupied and makes you absolutely zero threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so as I wrap this up, I want us to think on two principles from the text. First principle, what we see here, be angry and do not sin. God is commanding right emotions. Did you know that God can do that? In Scripture, God often commands us to feel certain ways about certain things. In Philippians 4, Paul commands us to rejoice, right? Again, I say rejoice. In James 4, verse 9, James commands his readers to weep and mourn over their sin. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. We are commanded in various places in the Bible to banish fear and anxiety, right? To not be afraid, to love God, to love the brethren, to have affection for the saints. We are commanded to sing, to shout, to be glad, and so on. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, Verses 47 and 48, God says this, Because you did not serve Yahweh your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, because of His blessings, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. Did you catch that? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. John Piper says of this text, God threatens terrible things if we refuse, refuse to be happy in Him. Now, true enough, sometimes obedience to such commands is really, really hard. Okay? 
I don't want to give any illusions there. I'm not just talking about challenging. I'm talking about seems way, way beyond my grasp. There are days when joy is hard. There are days where thankfulness and gratitude are really hard. There are days when anxiety feels so overwhelming. To this, the Lord Jesus says, I know. Bring it to me. And I will use it to shape you and to teach you how to walk with me in the midst of it. It might take longer than your lunch break. Okay? However, don't use that uh, to, to not attempt obedience during your lunch break. But it might take a lot longer than your lunch break. So the, the first thing I, uh, in the sort of conclusion, God commands right emotions. That's the first thing I want to close with. The second thing is God limits, fences in what proper emotional expression is. Right? If it wasn't offensive enough, right, that the Lord tells us to feel certain ways about certain things, God also limits what we do with our emotions. And so what I want you to remember is that unrestrained emotion is not a spiritual gift. Okay? The command is to be angry The limitation is don't sin with it. So what that means practically is the way you feel can at times be sinful. The mere presence of emotions is not by itself a validation of those emotions. Emotions should be checked, reviewed, interrogated, and frankly asked to defend themselves. What right have you to be here? I think that closing line of Psalm 43 is one of the most powerful moments in the entire book of Psalms. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's confused. You ever, you ever been so confused you don't understand your own emotions? You don't understand yourself? Yeah. Why? What's going on? Soul. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you miserable? Hope in God. For I shall again, that's future tense, I shall, a, day, a day will come when I will again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Attention, my soul, why are you feeling this way? Point your feelings in a hopeful direction, please. Also, there's this marvelous moment in the book of Jonah where Jonah is mad and he's pouting about it. And the Lord asks him perhaps the most beautiful seven-word question in the Bible. Do you do well to be angry? I see you are mad, Jonah. Are you right to be mad? For indeed, to quote the book of James again, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We tend to think of emotions only as things that happen to us. God speaks of our emotions as things we use or abstain from using, use more measured, to love Him, to love others, above everything. So, I want my joy insofar as the Lord gives it to me and insofar as I have to fight for it. I want my joy to lift the spirits of my wife and daughter when I come home. I want my sadness to be right sadness. Sadness over the things that make God sad. I want my anger to be in right proportion and as it were centered over the right things. God calls you to use your emotions not to be used by them. I think... This is actually, I think, part of the function 
of the gathered corporate worship service. Where we, together, Paul says, as members of one another, learn and experience what it is like to have our emotions placed under the control of the Scriptures. Sometimes this feels easy. And sometimes it feels like really hard work. But God is at work in us, for us, shaping us, calling us to feel to feel mightily, to feel rightly, to feel in proper proportion. Some of you might remember way back, <laughs> it feels like way back, in the series uh, on the, that, that we did on the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 8, God shows Ezekiel a group of Israelite women who are weeping for Tammuz. Do you remember that? Weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a Babylonian deity In short, the legend was that every year she would die and rise again. And then when she rose again, she would bless the land and the people with fertility and prosperity as long as they showed up for her funeral, which lasted 40 days, and cried a lot. Okay, They had to cry about it. So they would come to the day of her death. That would inaugurate this 40-day period of weeping and mourning for Tammuz. They would just cry their eyes out, man. It was a deeply religious experience, no doubt. They would be overcome with their emotion, bawling like babies, and it was rank absolute idolatry, and Yahweh condemns it as disgusting. Pastor Brian, I thought we're supposed to weep with those who weep, right? Yes. That's Romans 12, 15. You should weep with those who weep unless their weeping stirs up the anger of God. You should rejoice with those who rejoice unless their rejoicing over sin stirs up the anger of God. In those cases, you should not shed a single tear or permit a single fist bump. Our model for this will forever be Jesus Christ who used His emotions to direct others in proper expression. Jesus was always, when He was mad, He was properly mad. When He was sad, He was properly sad. When He wept at the grave of Lazarus, it was the right and proper thing to do. He did not sit on His strongest emotions. He did something with them. He taught. He instructed. He warned. He confronted. And lest we forget, he drove those blasphemers out of his house with a whip of cords. But on the cross, Jesus Christ was totally overcome and destroyed by agony and misery so that no earthly agony or misery would ever totally overcome and destroy you. Christian. The face of Christ was lowered to the blood-soaked mud of Gethsemane so that you might be made steady in the midst of your enemies and afflictions and burdens and fears. Jesus Christ was utterly consumed and abandoned that there would never be any actual distance between you and the love of your Heavenly Father.
And just as He has liberated you from death, He means to shore up your defenses against every opportunity and would-be foothold of the devil. Therefore, shall we ever sing and shout that we shall not be afraid. Not of our enemies, not of our future, not even of our own anger, for the Lord Jesus means to sanctify that and give it back to us clean. That it might be turned, if ever so briefly, into a weapon that puts the troops of hell to flight. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we need great help with this. We confess our need and how easily we are driven to unrighteous anger, how easily we are driven to righteous anger that we sit on forever and ever, and it too spoils. And so we ask that you would help us in this and for all who are hungry and thirsty and still know their deep need of help, bring them now to your table and feed them. In Jesus' name, amen.